This section of uh, the lectures on jihad will deal with the issue of radical Islam, uh, which, as I began to say in the last section, is a logical and interesting outgrowth of modernist interpretations of Islam. One of the problems that we have, as is not unusual, is definitions. Um, this uh, movement, which I'm calling radical Islam, is called by a number of different names or terms uh, throughout the scholarly world uh, or the non-scholarly world. In some cases, they're called fundamentalist Muslims. Uh, in other cases, especially in European, uh, French uh, cultures, they're oftentimes called Islamists. Um, they themselves simply call themselves Muslims. They avoid any sort of sectarian aspect um, as much as they can. Now, the reason why I refer to them, and here I'm following in the footsteps of William Shepard, whose judgment I uh, respect very much in this particular case, uh, as radical Muslims, is because there's a strong sense of radicalism, in other words, returning to the root that uh, characterizes their, um, their movement overall. So what are the characteristics of this movement? And here I'm forced to isolate a number of different things that scholars have, uh, have discussed over the past 20, 30 years as this movement's been prominent um, within uh, the Muslim scene. Um, the first and most dominant one that we can always find uh, is that hostility towards Sufism. Um, the sense that Sufism, and this goes back to both Ibn Taymiyyah and his later disciple, uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, uh, the founder of Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the sense that Sufism is essentially a continuation of polytheism within Islam. And that the use of intermediaries, especially holy men, uh, especially various different prophets, um, essentially constitutes polytheism or shirk. Remembering that shirk is the most uh, is the most deadly code word in Islam. To be called a mushrik, somebody who associates other deities or entities with uh, with God, is uh, to be fundamentally anti-Muslim. And the truth is, is that Sufis do use these sort of intermediaries. Um, of course, they have their own defense. I'm not going to go into that too deeply, um, but. Uh, they have developed over the centuries a whole range of different types of, uh, of, uh, of activities, spiritual activities, uh, that are supplementary to, uh, to what we might call normative or sharia-based Islam. Radical Islam basically wants to return Islam as much as possible to its foundation inside the Quran. Now, in that regard, it has some characteristics that are common to Protestantism in the sense that it tends to reject or have some doubts concerning the Hadith literature. The Hadith literature, remember, is so mutually contradictory that it's sometimes difficult for anybody to find a common thread within this, this material. And so one of the points of departure that, uh, that radical Muslims have is that they seek to find a basic holy document 
which they can say is from which all Islam proceeds. Now, there are problems with that approach because much of traditional Islam simply cannot be derived from the Quran. The most obvious and basic example is the fact that the five prayers are not mentioned inside the Quran. Uh, something that is so basic and fundamental to Sunni Islam as to be more or less the, the yardstick by which Muslims were judged for 14 centuries is not mentioned inside the Quran. The act of prayer is mentioned inside the Quran, but the number of times that one has to pray uh, is not. And so radical Muslims seek to find some type of document, and they, they've obvi- pretty obviously focused upon the Quran, but uh, with some supplements to the Hadith literature when they just absolutely cannot get anything out of the Quran. Um, but in that particular way, they are very textually based. Um, so, in, uh, so, the, so they're hostile to Sufis. They're scripturally based. Uh, they're very Sharia-driven. Now, this Sharia-driven nature of radical Islam is not connected to any of the four rights, the four traditional legal rights. And that's one of the interesting things uh, that is characteristic of them, is that they want to see themselves as not being Malikis or Hanbalis or Shafi'is or so forth, uh, or even Wahhabis, but just as Muslims, that they want to present themselves as being the best and most authentic representation of, uh, of Islam. They want to avoid as much of Muslim history as they possibly can. And that's what, in my opinion, truly makes them radicals, is that need to avoid Muslim history. Because Muslim history for the past thousand years has been intertangled with Sufism. Almost every single major political, religious, cultural figure uh, inside Islam for the last thousand years, up to 1950 at least, uh, has been a Sufi. And so it's really necessary, actually, for them to, 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 to circumvent that. Okay, and in order to do that, they must create new law. And that new law is what's known as fiqh In other words, they go back not to the Hadith literature and not to the Sharia, although sometimes they, they, they refer to it, but to the actual life of the Prophet himself. And so they'll look at the Sira literature in order to create new law. And so by that, they can circumvent all of that massiveness that constitutes the Sharia, the Hadith, its surrounding discussions, all the fatwa literature that, uh, that, uh, that they uh, are associated with, and create a whole new block of law that's based not upon that, but upon uh, contemporary events. Um. Now, there's other different aspects that are quite interesting about radical Islam. First of all, it's a, it's a very close embrace of technology. Um, and it's not surprising to find that many radical Muslims come from a, a technical background. Many are, are medical doctors. Uh, radical Islam is very, very strong on university campuses usually. Um, and it has, it has kind of a, of an aura and it's embraced the internet completely. Um, it has an aura of kind of being with it, being a hip movement as it were. Uh, 
um, that the conservative Islam simply cannot keep up with. Um, its willingness uh, to integrate women into leadership positions is quite remarkable. Um, now, that's not to say that women are given uh, some sort of real power within the movement. But in general, radicals are much more willing to have women's uh, sections for uh, uh, for teaching purposes and so forth, for uh, and sometimes even uh, full organizations that will cater specifically to women's needs, such as Al-Hudda uh, and Sisters in Islam, uh, which are both very... Uh, very much on the on the on the, the forefront of uh, women's education inside uh, inside Islam. Um, they are basically pan-Islamists. In other words, they fundamentally reject the idea that there are any such things as Muslim states. Uh, one of the things that you'll the, that's useful in in helping figure out about radical Muslims is oftentimes say. I'm not from, you know, let's say like Saudi Arabia. They'll just say I'm from the Arabian Peninsula. They'll use the geographic equivalent, but not the actual political state. They'll recognize that Muslims have some sort of boundaries between them. What they would like for is to embrace a a pan-Islamic political entity. Now, that pan-Islamic political entity would ideally be ruled by a caliph. And so lacking a caliph uh, is of critical importance to radical Muslims. They need to find some sort of an authority figure uh, to take the place of the Ottoman caliph that was removed in 1922-1923. Now, that is a serious problem. A very, very serious problem. Because there's no mechanism by which a caliph can be brought out of the woodwork. Um, there are different views about who who is possibly a candidate for being a caliph. One would tend towards uh, a more Shiite approach that it must be a descendant of the prophet. As a matter of fact, a couple of years ago, there was some, uh, there was some bruja about uh, uh, King Abdullah of Jordan being the next caliph. Um, which, you know, as, as far as descendants of the prophet goes, he's basically the only one that has any particular political power right at the present time, although it's not very plausible to see him as a caliph. Another trend is what we might call the egalitarian or, uh, or internationalist or universalist side of Islam, which is to basically appoint the best possible Muslim to be the caliph. Now, it goes without saying that the term best possible Muslim is pretty nebulous, and it's very difficult to know how that personality would be established. Um, But uh, there are several different methods by which one uh, such person could come to prominence. One would have to be divine intervention, and you do definitely find uh, descriptions of some sort of future caliph being... Uh, for lack of a better term, sort of zapped by God into uh, into prominence. Um, but another better way that is more socially acceptable in Islamic history is to uh, is that the best possible Muslim will be the person who fights for Islam and who can achieve that spiritual prominence by actually fighting uh, on uh, Islam's behalf. 
their tendency is is to actually see Islam as a complete system, as a system that is based upon what they refer to the Quran as constitution. In other words, the Quran constitutes an entire systematic way of life that would be roughly equivalent to the U.S. Constitution in its uh, in its completeness and in its basis for the Islam for Islam as a state and as a civilization. So this is something again that is quite different from conservative Sunnis who would not go quite as far as that to say that Islam is a complete system. They must allow for other different uh, entities that can possibly uh, influence it. Um, they're very strongly against elites. And not surprisingly, elites are very strongly against them. There's, uh, within radical Islam, there's very much of a, of a youthful protest movement aspect um, where elites are usually demonized as being agents, uh, conspirators against Islam, uh, those people that are in pay of the Western governments and so forth. Um, these sort of accusations are extremely common uh, within radical Islamic dis discourse. And the elites return the favor. Uh, there's no doubt uh, of the hatred of, of many elites towards radical Muslims. Um, and we'll come to that in just a sec. Um, and a last characteristic uh, is the use of takfir. Um, we've already discussed that issue of Sunnism as not really being much of a doctrinal religion during pre-modern times. Uh, definitely Ibn Taymiyyah made a maximum effort to make it into as much of a doctrinal religion as possible. Radical Muslims take his views and stretch them to the limits and essentially create uh, a fixation upon creed that is undocumented, undocumentable prior to the 20th century. Uh, in other words, one's creed becomes much more important than other different orthopractic uh, aspects of Islam that had been important, such as the five prayers, uh, prior to that time. And their willingness to declare anybody who does not fall within that creed as non-Muslim is extremely important and is a radical change away from uh, from classical Sunnism. Classical Sunnism in general, unless one was extremely obnoxious, uh, did not usually place somebody outside of the boundaries, let alone witch hunt them, unless they were a Shiite or an Ismaili. But in general, if someone, if someone affirmed that they were Sunni uh, and still held, you know, reasonably... Uh, acceptable views, there, there was really no attempt to actually witch hunt somebody out. Today, that is not the case. And radical Muslims definitely make a major effort to police the boundaries of Islam uh, in a very aggressive uh, and in sometimes violent way. Okay, one should not assume that all elements of radical Islam are violent. There's a great many sections of it that are, uh, that are dedicated to other different uh, developments within Islam. Uh, some of those are educational. Some of those are missionary-oriented. Uh, some of those are even political. Some of them are cultural. And some of them just simply withdraw from society altogether using hijra, 
Uh, remember that we uh, talked about hijra, the method of withdrawal from society uh, that was perfected by the Prophet Muhammad and used so often by jihad groups in the past, especially in Africa. Today, it's used uh, mainly by groups that will withdraw into smaller communes, uh, what are oftentimes called the jama'at, uh, groups, uh, sometimes that will be established in various different sections or quarters of a given city, and they will, instead of trying to impose sharia upon the larger community, will simply try and impose it upon their small uh, section. Now, not all of these groups are uh, violent by any means, uh, and many of them are, in fact, simply quietist, um, and they they simply withdraw from society. It's very possible, however, that some of them can make the transition from uh, from quietism to activism into violence uh, very quickly. Um, now, so jihad, uh, as I said at the end of the last section, had uh, basically been localized in, under the control of various different elites who usually sought to focus it against uh, against some sort of an outside uh, force that was accepted by wide consensus as being anti-Muslim or opposed to the interests of Muslims. The most obvious example would be uh, Israel. Um, so that's led to a number of different types of jihad movements uh, that have developed throughout the Muslim world. The one that has the most broad acceptance is what we could call jihad against, uh, against perceived occupiers. Um, that would include groups such as the Afghan Mujahideen during the Soviet occupation, uh, Hamas, uh, Hezbollah to some extent, uh, and a number of different others where there's some sort of situation where a non-Muslim entity or power has control over Mus uh, Muslims or land or territory that is considered to be Muslim. And usually those groups uh, have antecedents in, rather, in, in different types of Marxist groups. For example, Hamas, basically, prior to its prominence, uh, the Palestinians uh, held uh, their allegiance to the PLO. Um, uh, Hezbollah has a, a number of different antecedents in various different Marxist groups that were prominent in Lebanon in the 1970s and early 1980s. And uh, the same in the Philippines, the, uh, the radical Muslim groups there uh, were also preceded by, by various different Marxist liberation groups. So many of, these, uh, many of these radical groups will take their language of discourse basically from Marxism and give it something of, a, of an Islamic tinge. Um, and they are the ones that have the widest, broadest legitimacy they're the ones that, that can hope, in many cases, to actually transform themselves into, uh, into political parties, maybe even achieve power, as Hamas has in the recent past. The second uh, group or tendency of jihad during our own time is uh, jihad against the, the government. Now, this is one that's led on, repeated, on a repeated basis to uh, civil wars inside Muslim countries. Ultimately, the belief, uh, the, uh, the anti-governmental jihad comes back to that tradition where, uh, one, uh, where uh, Muhammad says 
that uh, that a word of truth in the face of an iniquitous sultan is the best form of jihad. And the ideal was, once again, people like Abdullah bin al-Mubarak or Ibn Taymiyyah who would speak directly to the sultan and reprove him uh, for his evil. Now, from a conceptual point of view, the the jihad against the government basically is what's known as the as the near enemy. Remember, in the last session, I discussed the the terminology that was so common between uh, between modernists that there's a far enemy and a near enemy. Far enemies were enemies like Israel or perhaps the United States or various different European entities uh, that controlled uh, sections of the world that were deemed to be Muslim. Near enemies, however were those that uh, were actually Muslim or apparently Muslim governments that had no longer ruled or precluded ruling through the Sharia. And so they stood in the way of actual formation of a Muslim state. So uh, radical Muslim groups viewed those governments as being, and, and the elites that supported them, as being their uh, strongest uh, enemy. And uh, really starting throughout the 1970s, 1980s, uh, progressively into the 1990s, uh, this tendency of seeing the near enemy as being the most important and needing of being fought uh, was extremely strong and led to civil wars in Algeria, uh, in Egypt, and uh, to some extent even in Saudi Arabia and in a number of different other countries. A third tendency inside jihad is uh, what we can call a globalistic one. And that is one where essentially the near enemy and the far enemy are combined. In other words, uh, and this is most closely associated with al-Qaeda, with Osama bin Laden and his ideological cohorts, is that the... that. Unbelief is really one entity, whether it bears a Muslim name or a non-Muslim name, is located in the United States or in Egypt or in Algeria or in Saudi Arabia. It's all one, and it needs to be fought together and defeated together. Um, so it, glo- it goes without saying that uh, the, this last tendency is not going to find any government that is going to support it. Um, and has uh, suffered from some problems of um, of uh, legitimacy. Okay, a couple of uh, of important intellectual figures that are prominent in the jihadi scene uh, that need to be mentioned right here. Um, Abdusalam Farag, uh, who was executed in 1982, wrote uh, what was probably the most important uh, codifying work associated with radical Islam. Um, it's usually called the neglected duty or the absent obligation. Um, there's translations by Johannes Janssen and uh, various different Muslims. Uh, the one that I have is by one Abu Umayma and can be purchased in Britain. Um, and it basically is a polemic a- against radical groups who do not accept that the government of Egypt needs to be fought. And uh, Farag basically takes most of his arguments from, uh, from Ibn Taymiyyah 
uh, Ibn Taymiyyah versus the Mongols, which I alluded to in uh, the previous section. And he applies them to the government of Egypt. He says that those people have Muslim names, but they do not impose the Sharia. They do not rule as Muslims, and therefore they need to be fought and they need to be killed. And so not surprisingly, Farag uh, was one of the ideological proponents behind the assassination of uh, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat in 1981, for which he was executed a year later. Farag's book is uh, Farag's book uh, booklet was actually discovered uh, in among his possessions uh, after his arrest, and then published uh, in serial form. Um, a second very important figure is the Palestinian Abdullah Azam, uh, and this is, uh, I think, one of the most important uh, jihadi radical thinkers uh, in the recent past. Um, one of the problems that radical Islam has is uh, in its hatred of elites, uh, and especially the ulama, and one should not, uh, would not have any illusions about how strong the hatred of, uh, of, of radical Muslims is for the ulama. Um, they suffer from a lack of legitimacy. They suffer from a lack of, uh, of prominent figures who subscribe to their movement, who have actually gone through a rigorous Islamic training. Now, radical Islam as a social movement, as I said, oftentimes tends to, uh, to appeal to those people who do not have a deep Islamic training. They tend to come from technical fields, uh, medical fields. They do not tend to come from the humanities. Um, and they are oftentimes people who have gone through some sort of a transformative experience uh, sometimes scholars refer to that as the born-again experience and refer to them as born-again Muslims. Um, it is not at all unusual for radical Muslims to be compromised in some way, to have gone through some sort of a sinning or a serious compromise and to have then repented and joined up with uh, with a group like this. So... Uh, many of them uh, will find uh, their uh, their social transformation, their religious transformation uh, in prisons or in various different other um, shady establishments. Uh, Abu Hamza, for example, was a, a bouncer at bars and married a prostitute. Um, Abu Musab Zarqawi was a petty thief uh, converted in jail. Many of them have these these sort of uh, these sort of stories. But what is common among them, as I said, is that, is that they're really self-taught, is that they have no, uh, none of that, uh, none of that um, educational prominence that the ulama have, having gone through rigorous training uh, in the Sharia and so forth. Abdullah Azam is one of the exceptions. He was the real thing. He had gone through all the different uh, all the different schools, like Al Azhar and uh, several different uh, Saudi Arabian universities in the 1960s and 70s, and uh, ended up in Peshawar, uh, founding Al Qaeda in uh, 1987, together with Osama bin Laden. So Abdullah Azam 
uh, in his many writings, uh, fought for uh, for a type of spiritualization of jihad and a salvational interpretation of jihad, which is much closer to that of Abdullah bin Mubarak's than any other during the intervening years. He openly says in several of his writings that any Muslim who is not out on the battlefield is really not a Muslim. And he, uh, he developed jihad as a, a, as a totalizing life struggle. In other words, the jihad which he fought in in Afghanistan, he viewed as merely being a prelude to a vast jihad in which Muslims would regain their, uh, their prominence in uh, the contemporary world by conquering all of the lands that they had once controlled. Now, when one realizes from his writings the extent to which he sought to create the, the jihad, in other words, to reconquer uh, all of southern Europe, uh, all of southeastern Europe, uh, all of southern Russia and Ukraine, most of China, uh, all of India, uh, much of Africa and so forth, you can realize the sort of expansive nature that jihad has and uh, the, the sort of drunkenness that overtook a person like Abdullah Azam as he began to realize that the Afghan jihad was going to be a success um, into losing all sense of proportion about what could be accomplished through jihad. At any rate, he is best known for a number of different fatwas uh, that uh, basically resolve the issue of who has the authority to declare jihad, who has the right to participate. More or less, uh, Abdullah Azam says, anybody who stands in, your, in the way of a person who wants to join the jihad is fundamentally wrong. And so he managed is intellectually to destroy all of the uh, of the the legal uh, methods by which one could say that they could not join the jihad. For example, um, uh, one of the one of the issues is is to obtain uh, parental consent. Uh, he manages to destroy that, saying that uh, really during times of uh, fard ein, uh, the issue of parental consent is entirely. Uh, null and void, uh, and many different other things uh, he he develops. Um, another similar radical uh, cleric uh, was Hamoud bin Akla Shuaibi, uh, who was one of the major Saudi uh, thinkers who died in 2002. Um, he was once again one of the only, one of the very few of the major uh, Saudi ulama who actually subscribed to all of al-Qaeda's um, uh, goals and so forth. But he didn't really write that much, but what he did write had huge amounts of spiritual authority associated with it because he was well known to be an ascetic uh, who had withdrawn from society, who had had a, a great deal of spiritual prominence in the, in the universities in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, but uh, had turned his back on that. Um, another uh, last figure, another Saudi, Yusuf al-Ayiri, um, is the one who I, I call the, the, the popularizer of jihad. And he really brings us to a new uh, type of figure. 
um, because really with uh, with uh, with people like Azam and Shuaibi, it was easy to uh, to to suppress their works. Um, most of them relied upon the printed word, and uh, governments throughout the Middle East and throughout the Muslim world are quite adept at being able to suppress the the written word. Um, but with the appearance of the internet and uh, the embrace by which radical Muslims have taken the internet, um, people like Ayiri have been able to create a new persona for radical Islam on the internet. And to this day, I would say that actually the future of, of radicalism and jihad is really no longer in inside printed uh, works at all. Um, which you can find very rarely now in the Middle East, and only after extensive uh, searching through the black market. Um, but Ayuri was was a man who could take uh, various different issues and really pin them and uh, and explain them to a popular audience very carefully. Um, his uh, his his works are, are still present on the internet. Uh, the Islamic ruling on the permissibility of martyrdom operations, uh, really a standard uh, text in English on uh, the use of suicide attacks, um, which in its English version is signed by, quote, a council of scholars from the Arabian Peninsula, <laughs> which after his death uh, was revealed to be none other than Ayuri himself. <laughs> um he also uh, performed a major uh, step forward in uh, the use of women in jihad and penned a very important text on the, uh, the permissibility of women in participating in jihad and especially in martyrdom operations, which has always been a problem in, a contemporary, in the contemporary Middle East, uh, if only because, uh, because the role of women uh, especially in such a conservative society, has um, has been at odds with other different revolutionary organizations, especially those of a Marxist bent, uh, especially among the Palestinians or Lebanese or Syrians, uh, where uh, regimes or various different Marxist groups sought to give women particular prominence uh, inside even fighting organizations. And indeed, several of the early suicide attackers in Lebanon uh, were women. Now, Muslim organizations did not want to be seen, especially radical Muslim organizations, did not want to be seen as being uh, retrograde with regard to women. And indeed, there was a a strong clamor, especially among Palestinians, uh, for women to participate in uh, in martyrdom operations or informal fighting and so forth. Now, Hamas was very, very reluctant to do that. Very, very reluctant. Um, but eventually, uh, and so that, that makes it doubly surprising, actually, that, some, that, uh, that, that one of the, uh, the most decisive uh, descriptions and, and defenses of women participating in jihad actually appears from such a conservative society as Saudi Arabia, of all places. But uh, once again, following in the footsteps of Azam, Ayiri manages to, uh, to, to demolish intellectually and religiously all the different arguments that could possibly be used against a woman's participating in, uh, in jihad. And also after uh, September 11th, uh, Ayiri also penned a very, very large and interesting 
um, defense an explanation of uh, of uh, the September 11th attacks, the reasons for them, the the legal literature that would support them, called Hakikat al Harb Jadida, which you can still find on the internet. The the truth of the of the uh, of the new Crusader war. So uh, many other different things he's published and so forth. Okay, what are the themes of contemporary uh, jihad literature? So. Uh, Number one, we have basic themes. Many of these we've discussed uh, in previous uh, sections. The overall necessity of jihad, the definition of the target group through justifications of occupations of Muslim lands, uh, takfir, accusations of collaboration with non-Muslims, refusal to implement the Sharia, conspiracy theories of mass annihilation of Muslims, destruction of Islam. These last are kind of a modern thing. Um, really starting from the, uh, from the 1970s, you begin to find literature that, uh, that the West is out to annihilate Islam in its totality, to uproot Islam in its totality. And so it's easy to see that uh, radicals would really very strongly embrace that, uh, that accusation because if one is in danger of losing Islam in its entirety, then it becomes legitimate to uh, to respond with totalizing um, attacks against uh, uh, against the opponent. Number two is the spiritual state of the fighter. Now, this is something uh, that the radicals are somewhat ambivalent about, remembering that they are pretty hostile to the traditions about uh, about there being some sort of a of a greater jihad against uh, one's uh, one's soul, but uh, they do talk extensively about the purity of one's intentions, and that one should not judge uh, the intentionality of a jihad fighter that that is left into the hands of God. Um, in other words, if a person goes forth, let's say, to carry out a suicide attack, there's no real way to know what exactly they were thinking during their last moments before they committed suicide. So there's a very strong effort to emphasize their possible purity of motivation in order to make sure that the attack is viewed as actual jihad. Because if the person's heart and and spiritual intention are pure, then it actually will be declared to be jihad. But there's no way that they can know that. So you oftentimes hear them, uh, hear radicals after the fact saying uh, when asked whether somebody is a martyr, well, this particular person is a martyr, inshallah. Okay, if God wills it, then he is a martyr. If God, uh, uh, but we aren't absolutely, absolutely sure. Um, it's important uh, for their fighting methods to be closely in accord with uh, those of the prophet. Um, the third point is uh, the tactics of jihad. Um, we have already alluded to this, the use of the example of the prophet Muhammad in battles. Um, it's very, very common. Um, and harking back to just about any sort of aspect of his life uh, will be paradigmatic for uh, for uh, radical Muslims. And then fourth uh, deals with the goals of the jihad. 
Um, this is something that, once again, is not really discussed that much inside classical literature. And so it's, a, it's something that's taken uh, contemporaries, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a new thing. Um, Ali Aliyani's uh, book on the goals of the jihad uh, lists off a number of them. He says, uh, uh, he, he says rectifying historical justices, injustices, Reestablishment of the caliphal state, in other words, the messianic caliphal state that uh, uh, would unite all of Islam, to raise the word of God to the highest. Now, one should remember that uh, that one of the most prominent traditions discussing jihad is uh, is when the prophet asks, is asked uh, in Al Bukhari, he says uh, says what person is fighting for the jihad? Is it somebody who uh, fights for the sake of bravery, some fight for the sake of loot, some fight for the sake of prominence or fame. And then the prophet says, uh, the one who fights to raise the word of God to the highest, that's the person who's fighting the jihad. And then uh, other goals are the renewal of Muslim preeminence in the world to gain converts to Islam and so forth. Converts through jihad are a very important issue. Uh, the future of, uh, of radical Islam and its violent uh, ideology is really on the Internet. And there is where you find most of the most interesting materials today. Um, online radicals, online radical imams, and here one has to mention the names of Abu Muhammad al-Makdisi, uh, the prominent uh, Jordanian radical who was the teacher of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Um, Muqtasi runs a, uh, a website, uh, Tawheed, the Tawheed website, which is really the great, uh, the great library of radical Islam. Um, in, in several years of reading through it, I, I can't say that I've been able to even probe more than a small section of it. There's literally hundreds and maybe thousands of, uh, of volumes on it. Um, and it's, it's the most amazing collection and resource uh, from an intellectual and also religious point of view uh, that is available on contemporary radical Islam. Um, and so Muqtasi, although he's now a little bit out of it, um, is uh, still is still maintains kind of an aura because he spent so many years in Jordanian prisons uh, of being uh, a radical happening guy. Uh, most of the other ones that you find uh, online uh, are uh, are Saudis uh, people like Ali Al Khadair Nasser Al Fahad, uh, a figure who uh, put out uh, the the notorious fatwa on the use of uh, of nuclear weapons weapons of mass destruction, um, and a pretty interesting character. Now, just about all of those guys have fatwas on, uh, on suicide attacks. And these are, this is something where, um, where radical Islam can kind of overlap with, uh, with normative uh, or even conservative Islam is on the use of, uh, of, of suicide attacks as a weapon. We'll discuss uh, suicide attacks at a later talk, um, but suffice it to say that the, that the major point of difference right there is not the use of suicide attacks, it's the target of the suicide attacks. For conservatives and more elite 
members of, of society, the, the tendency will be to localize suicide attacks um, uh, primarily against Israel uh, or against some sort of enemy that there's, some, that there's a broad consensus uh, concerning them. Whereas radicals will try and broaden uh, the number of, uh, of possible targets uh, saying that if Israel is a legitimate target, then uh, that any European country is a legitimate target, the U.S. is a target, certainly Russia is a possible target, um, and uh, India and many others. Um, a second uh, future area for, uh, for um, uh, radical Islam is online jihad journals. Um, there's so many of them. Uh, it's, it's really hard to keep up with all of them. They, they come and go, uh, on a regular basis. They used to always be associated with uh, the websites of a given group like Hamas or the, the GIA, um, or Hezbollah or various different, uh, Iraqi radical groups. Um, but these things oftentimes get suppressed, uh, very fast. What one finds, uh, and here I'm just uh, going to discuss the um, the the rise and fall of, of what was probably the the most prominent and interesting of them, which was uh, Saud al-Jihad uh, coming out of the Saudi Arabian branch of al-Qaeda, um, was first of all, you saw the, uh, the the fact that the graphics were extremely good. Uh, the people who did the, uh, the this online journal actually knew something about the Internet. Um, and, you know, they, 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 they did a lot of care into making the... Uh, uh, the journal is attractive and as interesting as possible. Um, it would always be interspersed with various different blurbs, quotes from the Quran. Uh, the graphics were pretty amazing. Um, the content uh, was uh, completely disgusting. Um, I, I've never seen a more foul and disgusting magazine in my life. Uh, but it was amazing to be able to read it and its rise and fall between 2003 and 2005 and its very, very last issue, which came out in 2007, really pretty much parallels the rise and fall of the, uh, uh, of the, of the Saudi Arabian branch of, of Al-Qaeda as well. In contradistinction, you can see uh, what uh, other different journals that come out of groups that don't have very good funding. Uh, for example, the, if you compare the Saudi Jihad with the Risalat al-Mujahideen, which comes out of uh, Syrian radical movements, you see that the Risalat al-Mujahideen has virtually no graphics. Uh, and even though it's online, it really looks like it was printed out of like a, a typewriter. Um, oftentimes things are misspelled. Uh, it's, it's very, very much of a low-tech sort of operation uh, in contradistinction. Um, recently, uh, there's been a whole plethora of different uh, types of internet journals that will be dedicated to highly specialized things, such as how to build a bomb. There's a, a, a whole uh, genre of the, uh, of the jihad al-techni. In other words, the technical jihad. There's what's known as the jihad al-hackers, <laughs> the hackers jihad. Um, and uh, both in French and English, uh, Al-Qaeda and other different radical movements have begun to issue uh, their own journals. Um, Al-Qaeda's English journal just came out, another issue recently. Um, 
There are online books. Uh, at point number three, there are online books from imams, uh, usually justifications for major attacks uh, or dealing with uh, specific problems, um, such as uh, issues of beheadings um, uh, between 2004 and 2006. Um, the Al-Qaeda in the land of the two rivers, uh, headed by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, extensively uh, used beheadings, especially public beheadings on the Internet, um, as a means by which to, uh, to propagate his, uh, his group. And those became very highly controversial within the radical group. Uh, and eventually, I, Abu Muhammad al-Maqdisi ended up actually denouncing his own former student, uh, Zarqawi, for methods that uh, brought Islam into disrepute. Um, usually, uh, usually major attacks, such as September 11th, uh, the various different bombings in Riyadh, uh, the ones in Bali or the London bombings, uh, have this problem that they've killed large numbers of civilians or Muslims or other different groups that cannot be justified according to classical uh, Islamic teachings. And it's at that particular point where you find radicals beginning to use arguments coming out of uh, the use of the mangonel, uh, which was discussed in uh, section number two, I believe, of this, uh, of this talk, where the mangonel used by the Prophet Muhammad against the people of Taif uh, in his siege of them in 630 is seen as being something of a precursor of the use of both suicide attacks and weapons of mass destruction, in the sense that the mangonel propels a large rock over the, uh, over the walls of a city. It does not uh, discriminate between the people that it kills. Uh, it does not ask them, are you a Muslim, are you a woman, are you a child, or anything of that nature. And so in the same way, the use of suicide attacks or weapons of mass destruction is permissible because uh, the prophet acted in this particular way. Um, there are other different arguments that are used uh, to promote uh, these sort of mass casualty suicide attacks, but they have basically proven to be um, fairly weak for, for radical Muslims. And there's no doubt that the, that the use of, of large-scale suicide attacks uh, that has been so much of a hallmark of, of contemporary radical Islam uh, has led to a, a severe uh, downtrend in their popularity. Um, so websites, uh, point number four, websites uh, associated with specific groups, these have just about all disappeared. Um, but up until maybe 2003, 2004, you could, uh, you could access them. Um, but it's very difficult to find them today. Um, point number five, heroic materials. These are the things that you can find a lot on YouTube. Um, martyrdom videos, uh, which are so common. Last testaments, martyrologies, hagiographies, and poetry that's dedicated to various different people. Um, point number six are sermons, uh, usually on cassettes and then... Um, and then they'll get transferred onto online uh, teachings. And then point number seven is instruction manuals, which we've already kind of alluded to. Um, how to wage guerrilla warfare, how to foil police tactics, uh, what to do when captured, how to face torture, all sorts of things like that. 
The polemical issues that, that radical Islam has to deal with are, uh, and the places where they usually get attacked by their opponents are, first of all, the divisive nature of takfir. That uh, using takfir destroys the unity of Islam, it causes people to oppose the cause of radical Islam, and it leaves large numbers of people dead. Because uh, it's really takfir that stands behind the use of, uh, of suicide attacks in, uh, in the Muslim world. Um, a second uh, issue has to do with the careless use of barbaric ta- tactics, suicide attack, uh, attacks, uh, beheadings, and all sorts of different other tactics that uh, tend to, uh, to make Muslims look bad. Um, a third point uh, is, the, is uh, elites will oftentimes contest uh, their authority to wage jihad. Um, it's not at all unusual now for uh, for elites, for example, in Saudi Arabia or in Egypt, to issue proclamations of, who is this Osama bin Laden? Where did he get his uh, his religious authority to declare jihad? We don't declare jihad. Well, how does he do it? And, and so forth. Uh, the, the, the whole question of where do they get that authority uh, is being raised. And then a fourth, uh, a fourth issue has to do with questions about tactics. Um, are these sorts of, of attacks that they carry out actually beneficial or accomplishing anything? And this is one of the, one of the questions, a series of questions that was actually asked by radical Muslims after uh, September 11th. Great, this is a great attack. What did it accomplish? What did it accomplish for Islam? What did it accomplish for anybody? It managed to kill a lot of people. What did that accomplish? And so many on many uh, on this sort of basic level of what on earth is this leading to, radical Muslims oftentimes face very harsh questions, even from their own groups. And we know now that uh, that actually, from a tactical point of view, substantial numbers of Al Qaeda members did actually uh, oppose September 11th. 